Hey everyone, peace be upon you all. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to another episode of Faith in Fine Print. This is your host, Nihal Khan. And today we have another episode with you all talking about social issues, talking about history, talking to a guest who knows uh, uh, what he's talking about. <laughs> That's what a podcast is. So um, our guest today is Todd Fine, who's a New York City-based activist, a historian, a PhD student. And um, one of the really cool aspects uh, that led me to Todd is that I've been following him on Twitter and some of the work that he's been involved in, in very much so serving the downtrodden, I would say, within New York City, um, speaking truth to power. Uh, and at the same time, one of the projects which uh, led me to meet Todd for the first time was his research and tour on Little Syria. Now, for those of you that are listening, you're thinking to yourself, what is Little Syria? Well, just like you've heard of Little Italy, you've heard of Chinatown, once upon a time in Manhattan, where the current Brooklyn Battery Tunnel stands today uh, on the Manhattan side, there existed a whole community of people that had immigrated from the Ottoman Empire, what is now uh, known as the area of the Levant, which included Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, Armenia, Turkey, and other places as well. So there actually used to be in the, in the lower Manhattan area a whole group of people, a diaspora of Syrians who are no longer there. What's the reason for that? Well, we're going to find out very, very soon. So Todd Fine, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Nihal. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful, wonderful. So tell, uh, tell us about yourself. Tell us uh, about the work that you do and tell us about uh, what led you to uh, do the tours that you do right now and uh, anything else that you're involved in. Well, it has, it has a bit of a backstory. The, the interest in Little Syria uh, actually came out of an interest in Arab-American literature. Um, so there are very, a lot of famous writers uh, uh, who speak Arabic and wrote in Arabic literature, most notably Khalil Gibran and Amin Rahani. But my interest in all that, this whole topic of Little Syria and Arab-American literature um, goes back, like a lot of people, I think, to... Uh, our coming of age with September 11th. And, and I'm not of Arab descent. Um, I'm actually, my, my father is Jewish from New York City. My mother is a WASP Christian from Florida. So, but I, I, I just, uh, like many people, was, was shaken up by September 11th. I was studying Harvard at Harvard uh, political science at the time. I was actually Samuel Huntington's oh, search wow. assistant for three years, you know, the, the author of Clash of Civilizations. Um, I worked with him on a book about American identity and immigration, a controversial book that came out in 2004 called Who Are We? Um, and after I graduated college, uh, I didn't go into security studies or anything like that. I was, you know, bothered by the Iraq War. That was 2004. Um, and I just sort of moved to New York like a lot of people to find themselves. And I was doing odd things. I was teaching English to Brazilians. I was working on political campaigns. I was just trying to figure out what, what I wanted to do. And I uh, realized that, you know, there were s that we needed more stories about uh, Arab Americans or we needed more stories about the Middle East because I felt at the time that you know, I was really shaken up by the rhetoric after September 11th of, you know, people saying we should nuke the Middle East. or uh, And I also wondered how did we get to this point? You know, a lot of people still say that a lot of our issues in – 
least for the United States and the Middle East and the, the West, go back to World War I. And I started to research it. And I'm, I, I'm one of these people that always believe that you can understand a culture best if you can engage its art and its literature, because it's in that you kind of, you see the essentials of the, of the culture. You also see the universal aspects of beauty and how, how they express themselves. So I was curious, okay, is there Arab American literature? This was about the time, you know, 2003, 2004, five, when a lot of things were going online, when Google was publishing these eBooks. And I learned that there was uh, an early Arab American novel, the first Arab American novel published in 1911, uh, The Book of Khalid by Amin Rahani, who was a colleague of Gibran's. Some, some people call him the father of Arab American literature. And it's about two young men from Baalbek, or uh, what would now be considered Lebanon or the greater Syria, who immigrate to this area in lower Manhattan, Little Syria, which, by the way, is actually pretty much where the World Trade Center stands. I mean, there was even a you know, cornerstone of the Lebanese church found in the rubble of the World Trade Center. So there's this incredible novel, this highly, uh, uh, very philosophical, very funny novel. And I realized, it, I learned it was out of print. I had to go to the, maybe some people know, the Rose Reading Room of the New York Public Library on 42nd Street, you know, this beautiful building, and actually, you know, receive the copy, have them give it to me. And after that, uh, I made this kind of commitment that I would get the work back into print. And um, over the years, I, I met people who were doing activism to preserve the little Syrian neighborhood. I started doing tours, and it opened up this world of activism in New York City related to public art, uh, talking about the World Trade Center and the September 11th Memorial and a lot of different things, but it all came back to the spirit of this early Arab American literature, which is quite phenomenal in many respects. That's really interesting to note. Um, you know, one thing you mentioned is about, you know, Lebanese immigrants within America in the early 1900s. And what people forget, or like when you're looking at, uh, at history within, in and of itself in America, you see immigration to the extent where, you know, you had the period in the later 1900s where non-whites could not immigrate to America, right? But then on the other end, you're looking at a whole diaspora of people that came from the Levant area, settled all throughout um, the United States in that period, right? You had, um, you know, people that were living in the Ottoman Empire that left the Ottoman Empire and immigrated here. And I feel like it's a narrative that's not being, you know, spoken of. It's a narrative that's not being talked about. Um, and how long have you been doing the tours now uh, for Little Syria? Uh, I've been doing the tours, I think, for about 10 Ten years. Wow. Um, and you're, you know, you're right that it's it's not very well known that there were these early Arab American immigrants, and there's a reason for that actually, which was that in the 1920s, uh, people Arab immigrants were basically banned from the United States from 1924 to 1965 as part of the Johnson Reed Act, mm -hmm. along with a lot of other people like Jews and Southern and Eastern Europeans. But there was this, there's this gap. Of, of a period from about 40 years, there was a lot of immigration, then there was a ban for 40 years. And so that early wave assimilated into the country so thoroughly that a lot of them don't, didn't necessarily make the connection to the newer immigrants who were, you know, slightly in the 60s and 70s were more Palestinians, Muslims, Yemeni, of course, you know, other, other um, Arab groups. Um, so it there's, there's, there was this, there's this gap of awareness where these two waves of Arab immigration don't really 
see connections and people had forgotten the earlier waves. And I, but one of the things the research shows, especially when you study the literature, is how much commonality the early immigrants had with some of the struggles that the later immigrants and the contemporary immigrants are facing, both in terms of discrimination, but also in terms of political activism, dealing with crises in their countries or, or having to, uh, to deal with these big questions like imperialism and the collapse of empire. Yeah, and I think, you know, going back to the point you mentioned, Samuel Huntington, right, Clash of Civilizations, for those of you that are listening that are not aware of this book, and Todd can tell you more about it, um, it is indirectly or directly, I guess, how you look at it, is responsible for George Bush, basically. I don't know how you want to look at that. You know, as a student, you know, like, like I think there's been a lot of conversation about the book, right, and about, you know, what does the world look like? How are two ent- you know, entities maybe pitted against each other, right? You, that may be a narrative you may hear, but, like, you know, how, do, how does it look in your opinion? Well, you know, it's, it's, I'm glad you, you brought it yeah. up, and, and even in that yeah. way, because you know, Huntington is a tricky figure. A yeah. lot of people said, okay, what is, after 9-11, what is Bush doing? Yeah. Well, he's launching a clash of civilizations, as Huntington suggested. But Huntington's uh, thesis was dis- descriptive, mm-hmm. not prescriptive. He mm-hmm. was, Huntington was trying to argue that after the end of the Cold War, once ideology became less salient as an axis of conflict, conflict would be more likely to occur mm-hmm. along cultural and religious lines. Now, that you know, there's some difficult, there's some yeah. problems with that, especially in terms of the way that he he set up the categories. But it's you know, I think we could agree that at least the the, the there seems to be some impulse toward conflict across yeah, yeah. religion, uh, even if it even if numerically the number of wars haven't gone yeah. up, people differ with him. But I think he was he he sensed something in the guy, zeitgeist at the very least, mm-hmm. which turned out to be correct. What Huntington didn't do was say that you know that that. Uh, you know, cultures needed to conflict or they mm-hmm. could never get along or we couldn't learn from each other. What what he did say, however, which is a little bit more controversial, is that, you know, what Western liberal democracy might not work mm-hmm. in certain parts of the world. And that's part of his thesis that is, you know, is is still somewhat controversial. Yeah. What, what year did he publish it? I'm that, so he, he originally wrote a, a journal article in Foreign mm-hmm. Affairs in right. uh, 1993, and then he... Um, published the uh, a, a book version of it with Simon & Schuster in 1996. Yeah. By the way, I'm doing my dissertation on an intellectual history okay. of Samuel Huntington, not on this Arab-American. Got it, stuff. got it. So I have a lot of thoughts about him. Yeah. And that's him, That's in terms of American politics as like a liberal Democrat mm-hmm. who ended up, you know, arguably having some, some ideas that are related to this nationalist yeah. ideology. Yeah, yeah. And I... And and I think if I remember correctly, the strongest person that pushed back against him was Edward Said, if I'm correct, right? Like, I think that that's where a lot of the tensions came up, because I think Edward Said, for those that don't know, uh, he's most famous for writing a book called Orientalism, talking about how the West basically studies the East. But um, they were two opposing sides of a narrative, you could say, right? And I think he came out very heavily towards uh, Samuel Huntington. That's what I was thinking yeah. about, yeah. Yeah, Edward and Edward Said kind of, I think he gave a speech, maybe, I think it was a big forum at Columbia, I believe it's on YouTube, where he kind of takes this apart and, and argues that basically that Huntington is a functionary of imperialism and he's encouraging war. Um, I think, I, I mean, I, I think he was a little bit unfair to Huntington a little bit, but I think generally, you know, th- he's right in that there is, 
that we have to see things in terms of imperialism and and war. We can't only um, be de- you know just descriptive about everything. I think Huntington may have not Huntington Huntington may not have realized what he was allowing people to say. He didn't take responsibility for some of the ideas that that the ways that people use his ideas. Got it. So that's Got a larger conversation. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, but it's just really interesting to see how, you know, for many people, you know, and I think in a lot of the work that you're doing right now um, within New York City, like I was pulling up your page and just looking at certain things, right? It's like if I start reading down your profile, which we're not supposed to do for Faith and Fine Print, but it was really amazing, like the advocacy issues, Five Roll Trade Center, the Charging Bull, Downtown Community House, Elizabeth Burger Plaza. So it seems like New York City is very near and dear to you, right? It seems like that there's a lot of work you've been doing um, which is involved with the city. And, um, and I think that's where you as an individual recognize that you cannot individually look at any of these projects. It's a nexus of different things melting and mixing together. Yeah. A few things I'll say. One is, you know, one of the th- reasons why I started with literature and, and was affected by 9-11 is because I realized so much of what we do and what activism is, is storytelling. You know, in a way, maybe that's what the po- your podcast is doing, is you're telling different stories about Muslims and ta- stories about you know, humanizing people, telling about people's lives. And the World Trade Center and all this little serious stuff is inter- so interesting to me because it's almost, in some ways, it's, this is the, the stories of our lives are, is this part of New York City for whatever reason. Is this financial district, World Trade Center, and the fact that there's this other story of Arab Americans, literary figures, political activists, 100 years prior, um, is beautiful. And then it opens up all these other news stories that we can tell about, okay, now we want to honor these people, or now we want to save their old buildings, or now we want to encourage uh, the, you know, the, the powers that are creating this new World Trade Center complex to recognize this history in some way. It's sort of a, I see it as sort of a guerrilla a- activism using culture to change people's thinking and understanding with the goal of having more more cultural understanding so little syria let's go back to that um and then we'll come back to the 9-11 memorial issue um what is little syria where is Li- i know I, I mentioned where little syria is but where is little syria now and what does it consist of because i think the more recent tour that you've been doing is titled ottoman new york right talking about people that emigrated from the then Ottoman Empire into New York City, uh, New York being the, um, you know, the melting pot that it was in that sense. Or what I like to call it is a salad bowl, right? Not a melting pot, but a salad bowl. You know, you have people coming from all over the place, but you don't hear much about the Arab Americans that had settled within that area, specifically the area that's Little Syria. So where is it? What happened? Well, so it's right, it's right on the foot of Lower Manhattan, north of Battery Park, south of the World Trade Center, west of Broadway. Uh, so that area, uh, the, the west side of Manhattan, uh, lower Manhattan, was actually in the early republic was uh, the mansions for the Wall Street elite, the shipping elite. And then in, uh, as the elite of New York, and this is the story typically, they keep kind of leapfrogging up to around Union Square, Fifth Avenue, and then eventually Upper East Side, uh, Upper West Side. But uh, those mansions were converted to tenements for immigrants, uh, first for, for Irish and Germans starting in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s onward. But by the 1880s, you start to see a substantial immigration uh, from the Ottoman Empire, especially 
from the Mount Lebanon re- region of, of the Syrian territory of the Ottoman Empire. And the reason for that was that, the, uh, that those people had been doing silk trade in, in Lebanon, um, but with the opening of the Suez Canal and new artificial fabrics, uh, you started to get Chinese competition and, and then these, this, this competition from artificial fabrics. And so these, these merchants were looking for new places to do business, and uh, they were experienced in, in shipping, import, export, and they set up naturally uh, all around the world, in Latin America and Africa, but of course in the great port of New York. And uh, you start to see these merchants set up along the port area right where you get off the boat from Ellis Island. So this is literally right where you get off the boat. And the, the joke, of course, is that, oh, we didn't have the nickel to go uptown, or we, you know, we, we stayed there because we wanted to remember to go home. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's really right in the heart of things. Um, and that, that was pretty robust for you know, 40, 50, 60 years. It was known as the Syrian quarter, the Syrian colony, little Syria. It had these uh, import-export businesses. It had this army of peddlers who would g- receive goods from these wholesale houses um, on Washington Street. Washington Street was the main thoroughfare. And they would go out to New York, greater New York, and eventually all across the country. And the, the Arab Americans, the Lebanese, the Syrians, were so resourceful businessmen that by the 1890s, they found niches that placed them in every state in the United States. Um, and, you know, they're setting up grocery stores and, of course, starting with the peddling. The typical story is that, you know, they disappear for three, two or three years doing the peddling, and then you see them later in some phone directory as establishing a business. And, you know, some, many of them were very successful. Some, you know, although we, they typically only tell the stories of the success, you know, there were some failures as well. But it was, it's a substantial part of the American immigrant fabric. It was mm-hmm. a few hundred, uh, hundreds of thousands of people who, who descended from that. But Little Syria was always both the economic heart and the cultural heart. Um, and it had this, these extensive uh, Arabic journalism scene because they had freedom from the Ottoman Empire to publish there. And so you start to see all these different publications that were um, discussing politics. And then those, since there were multiple generations, they also had younger uh, immigrants, Arab Americans, who grew up uh, in the United States, had learned English and was exposed to Western poetry, and then they started publishing literature as well. So the most famous being Khalil Gibran, who grew up in Boston, but then eventually settled in in uh, New York and was part of this scene. And then, of course, the, the immigrant uh, writer that I study, Amin Rahani, who wrote the Book of Khalid, but also many works in Arabic and English about religion, about art, politics, philosophy, real Renaissance men. And they're, they're, these people are still taught throughout the Arab world uh, as al-Majar, or the, the immigrant writers. And it's, it's just part of... Uh, Arabic literature. Elia Abu Mahdi is another big name, a major poet. So um, it's a it's an um, you know it's a very important community. But it was it actually had sort of an end date because when they built the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, the famous Robert Moses, some people may know him as the great builder of New York. Uh, the the tunnel actually leveled many of the the lower uh, residential areas, including some of the churches, and so that was sort of the end of the neighborhood. Then that started really in 1946. Mm-hmm. So it had this terminal date. And then, of course, the, there's a little bit left, but then the World Trade Center in the 1960s and 70s destroyed even more. So there's only a few, uh, like, 
a few handful of buildings left. Myself and other historians have tried to persuade New York City to preserve them. And that's where the activism comes in because mm-hmm. there's this effort, especially after 9-11, when, we, when one of the side effects of September 11th, oddly enough, was this in, you know, investment, this encouragement for more real estate investment in that area, which meant that pretty much every low-rise buildings would be demolished. So it took, again, local historians to organize themselves after September 11th to advocate for the preservation of a few buildings. And we succeeded. Uh, they succeeded in protecting, actually, a Syrian church wow. at the corner of Rector and Washington Street, uh, a Melkite, or Greek Catholic Syrian church. And then yeah. we've also discovered recently that there was even a mosque in the area established by the Turkish government. So we're still learning a lot about this little Syria history. Yeah, and it makes me wonder, too, because you see today in New York City, at least um, pre-COVID, for example, you know, you have developers that are coming in and, you know, growing up right across the coast in or across the river in New Jersey, you know, you, you see like the Hudson Yards area and like things just keep coming up left and right. But you also hear about the other side where you have people that may be living in rent controlled properties that are now being pushed out one way or the other. Um, when... In the 1940s and 30s, when the tunnel was being built, uh, it was the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel, right? When it was being built, what was the pushback at that time period to say, hey, there's people that live here, there are homes here, there's communities here, there are cultural centers here. Like, was there a pushback or was it more like, well, if we're being told to do X, Y, and Z, which often ends up becoming the, you know, with a lot of immigrants in this country, they're not going to sit there and fight for the very basic rights, right, that they basically are theirs, right? They may just kind of not want to get confrontational and move on, but, like, was there any pushback during that time? Well, there was this sort of ethic uh, in that period, the modernist development period of what they called slum clearance. Mm -hmm. So there's lots of sections in New York where they just devastated block after block of these old buildings. And, you know, these are some of the old oldest mansions from the early Republic of the United States. You know, I think after the musical Hamilton, we would not want to uh, demolish that stuff today, but... They were prepared to do it. I think um, the, the immigrants, I mean, a lot of them by the 1930s and 40s, at least the Arab immigrants had moved on, or at least as they, as they were, got, were more successful, they moved to neighborhoods like Sunset Park or Bay Ridge, uh, places that where they had um, more land. But they had their businesses down there, and some of them sort of made calculations about whether they could keep going to business. There were actually some... Syrian uh, grocery stores, in my understanding, that still were there until the 60s and 70s, actually. So it didn't totally die. Mm-hmm. With it. We kind of give it this, this date of death. But there was some resistance, but not, not as um, activism was not as successful in those days in stopping demolition. Actually, the same thing happened with the World Trade Center, where there was a lot of small businesses uh, who were active in a neighborhood called Radio Row, an electronics business area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they protested the World Trade Center and had lawsuits, but to no avail. So there there was resistance in that case, but that was in, later in the 60s. You know, there was, uh, after I had done your tour, there was an area that I have frequented for years, which is Atlantic Avenue, right, in Brooklyn. And um, one of the places that I love going um, is Yemen Cafe, right? And right across the Yemen Cafe, you had mentioned like Sahadi's and uh, Damascus Bakery. I think you said, man, those are like you know, Syrian bakeries that are what four generations of Syrians have been running that in, in the New York City area? Like you have people that have been here for that long and businesses alive that have kind of been thriving since then? Yeah, no, the Sahadis goes back to the little Syria area. And in fact, they had two brothers who 
who branched off and had some conflict. I don't know all the details, but the Sahadis in on Atlantic Avenue says dating back 60, 70 years. But that's only that branch of the mm-hmm. family. The other branch uh, goes back even earlier. So yeah, it's uh, a lot of and a lot of people they don't realize that they think Atlantic Avenue is the first Arab neighborhood. They don't realize that a lot some of those businesses uh, started actually in Manhattan. Yeah, and actually, when you now when you go to Atlantic Avenue, you got the Barclays, and doesn't look like what it even looked like ten years ago. Or like, you know, I I lived in New York City for several years of my life, and it's unrecognizable, right? What's happening? You see people that again, gentrification is doing to the locals that have been a part of it, where indigenous culture quite literally is being made to flee. Right, and, you know, and and in Little Syria we have this dilemma where, you know, the neighborhood was destroyed long ago. So we can't be saying that de- gentrification is destroying it, but there's this question, well, do you leave some remnant of it, one or two buildings maybe, just so people can say there was a little Syria. Yeah. And, and I've argued that, that that is reasonable because uh, you know you have other immigrant neighborhoods, Lower, uh, Lower East Side, the Jewish population, Little Italy, Chinatown. In some ways, these immigrant groups are able to make a, to tell a story, not just to New Yorkers, but to the entire American population with the imagery of those neighborhoods as sort of proving that they had this rite of passage where they went through challenges and they came of, of age and they had successes and failures and they they earned their status in the American fabric. Now, there's some downside to that because there are some groups maybe that never, never earned their status at all. So there's a downside to yeah. that formulation. But you can make a case that Arab Americans don't have access to that sort of mythology and that maybe little Syria offers that. But there's also there's also an argument that maybe we shouldn't end the story with this kind of rite of passage. Yeah, uh, I think it also, like another thing that comes into conversation is that we end up thinking or otherizing Arab Americans or otherizing certain groups that live in America for whatever reason. But like if I were to say a name like Jerry Seinfeld, for example, right, nobody would think he's Syrian, right? If I were to say... Um, you know, even though it's from a different time period, maybe he wasn't part of the uh, the original Little Syria, but like you say, for example, Steve Jobs, nobody's going to think that his father was Syrian, right? And it just brings me to think about something where the culture of immigration within America has quite literally been a home to roughly anyone and from anywhere. And the fact that we are going out of our ways and using terms like, oh, wow, that's so exotic, right? Or, wow, I've never heard of that. Well, what type, what narrative of America are you studying? What narrative of America do we understand to be a part of America, actually? You know, and, and that's what gets me thinking. Because if we keep otherizing everyone and thinking that, you know, that a white American or a black American narrative is the only narrative of America, you haven't properly understood America. There's so many people in between that exist um, here whose histories are not known, whose cultures are not understood. Right. And there was this defined strategy of eugenics in the early 20th century to make it seem like certain, you know, the only good racial stock was from a particular part of Europe or something, discounting all of the contributions from many different parts of the world that had already been taking place in the United States. Yeah. You know, coming back to that, like, you know, and and you can expound on this more. I remember, I think it was in the early 1900s where Democrats themselves and their engagement with eugenics was not a healthy engagement. You know, where you actually see that it was an idea that was toyed with, oh, maybe this is something that uh, could be bought into before, I believe, World War II. And then not only that, when you go to, you know, to places like Berlin today, right, the one thing that they've made sure in that city after being demolished like three times in the last hundred years 
is that we cannot forget what happened here. We cannot forget what took place. And you see, for example, you know, the houses of, or the uh, offices of Gestapo, which have been razed completely and nothing's built on there so that people don't forget items of the Berlin Wall are still up to remind them. And it makes me wonder how is America going to reckon with some of its own past that it just has to kind of look at itself in the face and say, hey, this wasn't the best of America. And how do we recover from this? Yeah, I th- and I think, um, you know, America has these issues with you know, s- slavery, of course, which is also part of the fabric of lower Manhattan, you know, discrimination. But then, you know, the little Syria also begs us to tell the positive stories as well. You know, sometimes there's a d- d- we ignore the negative stories, but we also don't tell the positive stories yeah. of certain groups as well. So I think that's maybe one of the things I've wanted to do is tell not necessarily positive stories. It's not that so much, but the truth. Yeah. You know, we want to get at the truth of who contributed to this country. And also, what I'm also interested in is the, the politics of the Arab Americans because we've, alluded, we've, we've uh, kept them out of the story of like the creation of, Palestine, of, of Israel. Mm-hmm. You know, they were, Arab Americans were highly involved in that activism in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s. Uh, they were also involved in activism about uh, the Sykes-Picot and the, the mandate in Lebanon and in, in Syria and yeah. the, the revolt in Syria in the 1920s. So there's all of this history of, of not just not positive, but mm-hmm. real engagement of other possibilities in history that, that immigrants participated in. Yeah. And now we're being told, you know, that, that immigrants involved in activism or now is a problem, but... In some cases, they, they were trying to warn mm-hmm. America about things 100 years ago. I find yeah. that fascinating. So when you mean involvement in, the, in uh, Israel's creation and whatnot, how, what do you mean in that, in that sense? So in this you know, little Syrian neighborhood, uh-huh. 1920s, 30s, 40s, there were defined activist groups mm-hmm. like the Institute of Arab American Affairs mm-hmm. that were issuing reports to try to, to give the, the Palestinian side of what was happening um, with the Zionist movement and to make an argument that America had this important turning point. You know, there was there was this Arab awakening. There yeah. were all these new independent Arab countries. There was this huge uh, rise of, you know, oil politics, Islam, that if they made a mistake in how they dealt with this issue, it could have consequences for decades to come, and it did. And Amin Rahani, the, the writer I study, also wrote a lot about that in the American press. That's interesting. Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to ask you about was um, the project that you were involved with when it came to um, uh, the graveyards, right? I think you went uh, up and down the East Coast looking at different graves of people that are part of the, uh, the, you know, the, the Ottoman Empire who had emigrated here and been buried, right? Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, one one of the things that has kind of come out of this little Syria research and activism is an interest in Muslims, mm-hmm. because uh, specifically because you know when when I first started, people said, "Well, the early immigration that's a those are Christians," you know, and it's true. Most of the about 90 percent of the immigrants from Mount Lebanon were Christian, but there were a lot of Muslims too, uh, and and I saw evidence of this even when people were denying it. Like you see that there's the name Muhammad pops up, or you see there's a, a, d- a newspaper called Al-Bayan, which is de- dedicated to the Druze perspective in Little Syria. Um, so 
Um, one of the one aspect of that is is an immigrant group that's not studied very much, but is actually the first major Muslim immigration group, I believe. I mean, it depends what you, how I guess you could debate. There's some Russian groups and others, but Turks. There were a large amount of of Muslim Turks who immigrated, especially to Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, and they were working in the tanneries. When was this? this we're talking about the same period, you know, 1890s, okay. 1910s, 1910s. Um, some of them, the story that people tell is that uh, American missionaries, Christian missionaries, went to um, places like Harput uh, in, in eastern Anatolia mm-hmm. and uh, were engaging with Armenian Christians. But they started not converting necessarily to Protestantism, but saying, hey, these people have a lot of money and they have access. And then they, they, they immigrated and followed them back, which was not the intention and then they, you know, the, the Armenian Christians said, "Well, we're making all this money in, you know, in the the, uh, the tanneries or the mills of Massachusetts." And then other people in their villages start following them, and that included a lot of Muslims. Mm-hmm. So you can go to cemeteries uh, in these old industrial towns in Massachusetts, and you'll see dozens, hundreds of graves from 1910s, 20s, 30s with star and crescent on them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's pretty fascinating, and, and there's not a lot of research on it. And I've also, you know, there's an, there's I have a colleague in Turkey, Dr. Ishil Echehan, who I've been doing some of this research with, and we, we've, we feel similarly that just like we wanted to tell the story of Little Syria, it's also important to tell the story of these early Muslim immigrants. Um, the graveyards, what are you doing when it comes to the graveyards? Well, there's... there's uh, in these uh, industrial towns in Massachusetts, there are graveyards that have hundreds of Muslim graves from 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, um, and many of them uh, are you know have st- tombstones with the, the star and crescent. Actually, in Worcester, Massachusetts, the Mohammed, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood Association, or the Mohammedan Bro- Brotherhood Association, uh, bought a plot around 1917, and they have a big obelisk there. But many of those graves are not marked, and so there's a desire to maybe do a memorial for the people whose graves aren't marked, or maybe do some more educational efforts so that people can know that there are these large Muslim burial sites in uh, in industrial Massachusetts. And I'm, I'm working with my colleague on that. Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, and then going back to the mosque in Little Syria, I, th- I think uh, one thing that you had mentioned is that it's one of the older mosques that has existed uh, within New York City. Um, the one that comes to mind, I think you're familiar with this, was um, Alexander Russell Webb. You know, he was a uh, he was a Muslim who was, I believe, the U.S. ambassador to the Philippines under Grover Cleveland. Um, but I think before or after, during the U.S.-Philippine War. Um, you know, there was a mosque that was, I guess, founded during the time that he was there, but no longer exists anymore. Um, but I think this mosque that you were mentioning, which I believe was founded by certain um, students from Columbia University that were, or was that another group? But Close. Close. Okay. Close. Let, let, I'll tell the story. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, we- I mean, Webb is an interesting figure because he was kind of, he was eccentric. Yeah. And so he was, it's like kind of saying, I'm running a mosque out of my apartment and it's the first mosque in the United <laughs> States. Okay. And I have a newspaper that says it's a mosque. And I mean, he did some things. He was, you know, there was this period in the late 19th century where Americans were interested in all different types of religions, Baha'i, mm-hmm. other things. And it was sort of seen as an, an antebellum es- America. Yeah, it was yeah, sort of seen as an esoteric thing to be interested in. So I think people don't consider Webb's mosque the first mosque. And there's, there's a few other 
possible candidates, but we believe that there's a strong case to be made that the first at least pay immigrant mosque with a paid imam um, may be uh, on Rector Street in this little Syrian neighborhood established by the Turkish government um, around 1910. And the, the place where the, the Columbia students come in is there was an exchange program from the Ottoman Empire to Columbia University, and there's a picture of uh, this, the, the imam of this mosque at 17 Rector Street in Lower Manhattan with these Columbian exchange students. And he also told the New York Sun, a newspaper, that these Columbia students were going to the mosque. Wow. Awesome. That's, uh, that's a lot of history um, for an area with a lot of people who are of Arab descent, who are Muslim, who are Christian, who have been living there for God knows how many years and may not be aware of this history. Yeah, and, and we should be careful. It's not only necessarily the Syrians, Muslims, yeah. who are going to the mosque. One thing that we have to think about is that this was still the port area of Manhattan, and there were still a lot of ships there. So there were sailors, we believe sailors, on Brit- especially on British ships from Muslim countries, from, uh, from India, from Sudan, from Yemen, mm-hmm. and they would, uh, they would possibly go to this mosque. And so it was, at a certain point, the Ottoman Empire may have decided that there were enough Muslims in the United States, or especially in New York, that they needed to provide services for them. Another big factor was uh, after uh, the Young Turk Revolution, uh, the Ottoman Empire briefly tried to see if Armenians, Syrian Christians, Greeks, other groups would be loyal to them. And they had uh, events, and they, they, they tried to encourage them to, to be loyal to the new Young Turk government, but that wasn't working. And so uh, they decided that they needed to appeal to Muslims as well. And that included these Muslims that were in, uh, in in industrial Massachusetts, but also some who were in New York. Wow, that's amazing. Um, let me jump uh, subjects a little bit, and this is kind of uh, on the other end of a lot of the work that you do uh, in New York City, specifically talking uh, about the 9-11 memorial, right? And uh, the memorial is something when maybe the average person hears, they're like, oh, what activism are you doing in respect to the 9-11 memorial? It was, isn't it a memorial built for those that passed on that tragic day? I mean, what exactly is going on with the memorial with uh, Michael Bloomberg and other people involved? Yeah, well, my activism with uh, the 9-11 memorial and the Memorial Museum, because there's also this large museum at the memorial uh, that costs like a billion dollars to build. and It's this underground structure. It's a very unusual place. Uh, was my, my activism started to be quite innocuous. Mm-hmm. I had learned that there was a mandate that this museum include a section on local history. It's actually in their charter uh, and the recommended guidelines for the museum from the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation or the corporation that sort of gave them the land um, that they mentioned local history. So we, I appealed to them. I said, well, would you include maybe one sentence about the Little Syria neighborhood since it's uh, it's part of this the local history. And actually, there was the cornerstone of a, of a Syrian church found in the rubble, amazingly, of the World Trade Center attacks. A Syrian church in the World Trade Center rubble. Yeah, because it's that's an amazing story, and I, that could gets really complicated. But like documented. Basically, when they when the Battery Tunnel was built, yeah. they destroyed the, Mar- the Maronite church, wow. St. Joseph's, and it was moved up to another location, which was along Cedar Street, which was actually close to, you may have heard, there's a Greek church that was destroyed in the attacks. It's being rebuilt. Um, and uh, that that building was demolished 
in like the seven in the eighties to build a skyscraper, but was never actually built. So the the cornerstone actually stayed under this parking lot. Wow! And so it was only when they were digging up the rubble that they hit on Latin these words that said Maronita in Latin. And they said, oh, this is the cornerstone for the Maronite church. And they called up the church in Brooklyn. And that cornerstone is actually on display at Our Lady of Lebanon in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And that was an artifact that potentially, you know, if if they even wanted, maybe could have been shown in the museum on a temporary or permanent basis. So I I went to the museum to ask, you know, would you mention this little Syrian neighborhood? Maybe it would be a nice touch. Um, And they said that they didn't have enough time, but... Their response from the president of the museum was so kind of hostile when we when we pushed it a little bit that I realized there was something a little off in the leadership of the museum, which began to be validated a few years later when I learned that there was this controversy about a film in the museum and the way they talk about Islam and th- this kind of terminology that people are familiar with, Islamic terrorism, Islamist terrorism, extremism, jihadism, these terms that don't really mean anything, I think, to the average public behind, member of the public behind this association with Islam, and which sometimes I, th- I think has a real sinister, actually, motivation, and I don't think we should, um, we need to really scrutinize it. And it turned out that there was an imam who was on the original, uh, a religious advisory council, interfaith advisory council in the museum that had watched a film that was in the museum after um, some problems were raised. People told the museum that they that this film might be controversial among Muslims or Muslims would, would not want it. And this imam um, of a mosque in lower Manhattan, along with other members of this interfaith advisory council, asked for some changes to this terminology and uh, were, were refused. And so they had to re- resign from the advisory council. And that led to, as the museum was opening, this was in 2014, a lot of activism about you know, having academic review of this section. And as once the museum opened and as people got to look at what they were doing, um, myself, I feel that a lot of these concerns were validated. I don't think they do a very good job of explaining uh, you know, what, where Al-Qaeda comes from, what is the context of the region. Uh, I don't think these terms, you know, Islamist, extremist, terrorism, or, you know, even if they have an academic definition that some people can defend, I don't think they work in the museum. And so that, that, ish, that activism was done in 2014, but now with the 20th anniversary approaching, it's sort of having a second wind, both because there's a new film uh, that has come out, The Outsider, a documentary film that shows some of the making of the museum and validates some of these fears, and there's also uh, some uh, a former staff of the museum that are also confirming that the museum wasn't interested in talking about uh, Islamophobia after 9-11, and their leadership was strangely hostile to, uh, to, to Arab Americans and to Muslims in New York. I think there was even, uh, not too long ago, uh, it had been something that you tweeted, um, but where I think a mother of one of the people or a wife of one of the folks that had passed away, one of the victims uh, on 9-11, she basically was like, you guys are whining and dining on a mass graveyard, right? Where, you know, there are bodies that were not recovered. There are people at the bottom of this place um, where, you know, you guys are just kind of celebrating it and it is what it is. I mean, how, how has it been received amongst a lot of the uh, family and friends of those that passed on that day? Well, there's been a lot of uh, controversy about 
sort of the commercialization of it. You know, they have these, um, they have, a hu- you know, huge, large salaries for the executives. They have this corporate branding. It's a very controlled space. They have a fancy gift shop where you can buy all these knickknacks. Um, and they, and this is, and it costs $26 to get into the museum. And this is in a place where they actually are storing human remains in a museum that costs $26 to get into. Wait, what do you mean? It, uh, they are storing the remain unidentified human remains that they haven't identified. You know, they're, they're, they're in like the museum. In the museum. They are storing human remains that they haven't identified in the museum. That's disturbing. Yeah, and there's there are family members that feel this is inappropriate. Now they would maybe they have said they would prefer like a tomb of the unknown above ground. They just they don't really trust this institution that has so much money involved and all these other interests to to uh, manage this these human remains. It's but it's bizarre and it is on you know there's a lot of money involved in this and you know in a way nine eleven is big business. Yeah, and. Um, that's why I've been frustrated. You know, we had this very innocuous request of one sentence about Little Syria that was never accepted, but it 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 revealed more about uh, the culture of the institution, um, and it's it's a problem because we 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 don't know what to do with nine eleven. You know, we don't we're we have we just have this situation in Afghanistan that's that's telling us more about what we've been doing for twenty years. This 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 event as horrible horrific as it was has so much ramifications on our world and on our lives that we we don't even know how to treat it and we're not sure if this institution in Manhattan is is helpful. Yeah. I think it also goes back to so like you know you have the aspect of you, you're not going to we're not going to recognize Islamophobia. We're not going to recognize how you know Muslim Americans within the United States, Arab Americans, Sikh Americans have been so violently villainized, right? Right here at home. Um, but at the same time, it's not something that's going to be included within the narrative of how 9-11 changed America. You know, one thing that I'm thinking about is um, Muhammad Salman Hamdani, who was, I think, the, um, you know, one of the people, he was a young man who died helping people on that day, and he was an emergency medical worker, or an emergency, uh, an emergency worker, right? He was, um, I think he was a, was he a firefighter or a volunteer firefighter or, or was he an EMS? Or? He was an EMT, He's but an he EMT. was studying to become a NYPD officer. Right. He was a cadet. And they refused to include him uh, or his name, I believe, within, the, within uh, I, 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 there was something I'm reading about this. If, if you can. Yeah, I can that. explain it. So yes. it's a little complicated. I mean, they say, they claim it was a mistake or, yeah. or not a mistake, but it was, or it was too late to change. Basically he, uh, he was an NYPD cadet. Okay. So he was studying to become an NYPD officer. And nobody even knows why he went to the World Trade Center. It's not like he was ordered there. He just went there because he was a hero, presumably, who wanted to help people. It's an amazing story. But yeah. maybe his logic was, you know, was because he was becoming an NYPD officer, that he, he felt a duty to do that. So his mother w- learned that he wasn't placed in the section of the memorial. The, the names are laid out on the uh, above the fountains, around the fountains. He's not placed in the section that deals with NYPD, even though he was a cadet. He was part, you know, he was working toward to become an NYPD, was in this schooling and was being trained. He's in this location on the wrong tower. That's not where he was. his body was found, of people who had no connection to anyone. Mm-hmm. 
So his mother would like him to be that name to be removed. And I mean, she said that maybe they should have known or that she told them, I don't know exactly, but she would like his name to be removed and put in the section with the other NYPD officials. And they've so far refused. Um, And so this might seem a small issue, you know, it's like, okay, we're fighting over the names. But when you think this is actually one of the great sort of Muslim figures who was a heroic in 9-11, you have a mother who's appealing, it would have been a nice and appropriate gesture for them to do. And so when you combine that with all these other problems that people have had from the institution, and, and they've almost always, the Muslim and the Arab American communities in New York, get blocked or hostile treatment from the institution, it shows some sort of rot or problem. And another example is one of the most extreme anti-Muslim activists, mm-hmm. a woman named Deborah Burlingame, who's associated with all of the kind of hate groups um, and speaks at the, their conferences like Bridget Gabriel, Act Up, and Act for America. Um, she's on their board. There's a, there's like a one of the... like t- I've An activist Islamic I think if you took like the top... 20 anti-Muslim activists in the country, it would include Deborah Burlingame, and she's on the board of the institution. Mm-hmm. So that says a lot right there. That and does. they've been told to change that and to not allow that. It's also saddening because, you know, um, I don't know, I, I, I still remember, like, I, I was a lot younger. I was a kid, you know, when 9-11 happened. And um, I think I was t- 9, 10 years old. I'm aging myself here a little bit. But... Um, 20 years later, you still see some of the same exact issues, the same exact narratives, as if that we have bolstered ourselves more so in American foreign policy overseas, but yet we haven't learned. And now looking at 20 years later in Afghanistan, it sometimes makes us wonder, like, where, are, where is our moral conscience? Right. And we also have the Trump administration, which is, I mean, it's hard, you know, a Muslim ban. I mean, how can we think that a Muslim ban can be, you know, a Muslim ban leads from the hostile anti-Muslim rhetoric after 9-11. It's, there's a link. Even Trump, you know, he was lying and saying that Mus- he saw Muslims celebrating after 9-11 in Jersey, Jersey City. City. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, 9-11 is, and the, the anti-Muslim sentiment created by 9-11 and still fostered in that narrative about 9-11, the hate the, the use of 9-11 to disparage all Muslims in the world is uh, is part of the world of Trump. And in 20 years dealing with Afghanistan and shows that we might not have moved on. And, and I think there's also a danger now that people are going to say, well, Trump, is, Trump, Trump lost, that's over, we can just go back to our old habits. You don't get the sense that America has really come to terms with what Trump really represented. I don't feel like, I mean, maybe some people feel like, oh, they're, you know, they're, liberal, moved on, and we were changed the country. But I see the country becoming very uh, divided and this Islamophobic rhetoric being almost a feature of right-wing politics. And it's frightening mm-hmm. because we've, you know, we have many historical examples of where that can lead. And we, have, we had a Muslim ban under Trump. Well, the next Trump, or the worst Trump, it might not just be a ban. So I, I take it, that's part of the reason I feel this work, like fighting, you know, t- doing narrative activism, talking about the 9-11 memorial, it's, it's a real issue, and it, it may be a life-or-death issue. People just don't see it that way always right now. Yeah, that's, that's the scary part because, you know, when, when, when we begin to dehumanize, you know, when we begin to say they're less human than we are 
any group for that matter, that's where the process begins. It starts by just removing the humanity from people. You know, um, you know, we, we, we talk about World War II, for example, right? And we talk about America's moral conscience in World War II. But we forget that at the same time, there were people in internment camps in America, the Japanese, right? So many Japanese Americans were in internment camps. So when we talk about a moral conscience, it's not going to be seen in the moment as, oh, I don't, I, I don't see a reason to support X, Y, and Z. We'll see the after effects of it in history in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. But the question is, is that as individuals, people need to just wake up and smell the coffee, right? There, it, the rhetoric is never ostensibly as, as it is what it is. It's, there's always an underpinning that people of conscience, people of morals, and people of humanity need to understand and push back against. Absolutely. And that, you know, that brings it back to why I'm doing this type of activism. Because I remember after 9-11, I'm a little older than you. I was 20. I was coming of age then. Um, and that, that hearing, you know, we should nuke the Middle East or we should invade Iraq and kill all these people. That's what made me realize we have to tell stories, different stories to humanize people that have been dehumanized. Mm-hmm. Whether it's Palestinians, Arabs, Muslims, we do have a dehumanization problem in our media and in our rhetoric. And that's why we do this activism about Little Syria. That's why we talk about the 9-11 Museum, because somebody has to tell the stories that fight that dehumanization rhetoric, because if we allow it to fester, it could lead to real catastrophes. And that's how things like genocides and yeah. terrible things happen. Well, let me ask you this. Um, when it pertains to Little Syria, if somebody wants to read more, research more, um, where can they look to? I know there's that one book, Strangers in the West by Linda yeah. Jacobs. Yeah, there's a, there's a book by Linda Jacobs, Strangers yeah. in the West, which is a good kind of basics of the history in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also read the, the writings of Amin Rahani. I have a, actually a critical edition of the Book of Khalid, the first Arab-American novel, which takes place in Little Syria, published by Syracuse University Press. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting place to start. Um, and you can also just read um, read a lot of news reports and things. Um, but yeah, there, there is a, there's a desire for a need for more research. So maybe there's a call for graduate students out there to contribute to the study of Arab American history. So people want to get in touch with you and want to connect with you, where can they do sure. that? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm T Fine, or uh, you can go to WashingtonStreet.group. I have an organization called the Washington Street Advocacy Group, which does this uh, activism on historic preservation, uh, on on memorials, public art in New York City, things that tell stories. And so I'm interested in telling stories uh, in, in New York City, that especially that, that broaden our awareness of how New York is such an interesting multicultural place. Yeah. You know, there's a, something you reminded me of um, within the Islamic tradition. There's a saying in Arabic that talking about what one of the greatest forms of justice justice is. And in Arabic, it's kalimatul haqqi inda sultan al-jabir, which is a word of truth in the face of an oppressing tyrant, right? So we may have singular tyrants today, but now we have tyrants that work as corporations that are subjugating people to the worst of the worst, you know, lack of compassion, lack of care, and profit off of the death of others that... We need to say, where is our humanity? Where is our moral conscience? Where are we going together as a community? And not only that, what are we leaving behind for our progeny to come? 
This has been another episode of Faith in Fine Print with Nihal Khan. And we are very much so grateful for our guest, Todd Fine. Check him out on Twitter. Check him out online. Check him out wherever you can find him. Thank you, everyone. Take Thanks. care. And assalamu alaikum. Peace be on you all. Thanks.